you are just joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we are in a series in the book of Luke, and we're just going to kind of jump right in to it here today with a couple of pictures. Now, there's two pictures you need to kind of have in your mind, or two scenes, say movie scenes, you need to have in your mind to kind of understand the route we're going and uh, what we're going to cover today. And, and pay attention to these two pictures because the two little chunks of scripture we're going to look at kind of feel like two whole different sermons. So you're going to have to pay attention of how these two things really connect together because they do. And so the first one is this. Imagine one weekend we had a guest speaker in. Um, a really well-known guest speaker, right? And me, as the pastor, I'm sitting right up here on the front row. And he speaks, and, you know, most of what he says is, is really great, but I don't agree with everything. Um, and, but I can tell he really loves God. He, he's really inspiring all of you, right? And then imagine we had someone uh, that, let's say we were a church that had been around for 30, 40, 50 years, and we had somebody who's in a wheelchair, you know, almost 20 years ago. They were paralyzed. They are sitting right over here in the corner, in a wheelchair, everybody, you all knew him. You'd all been seeing him for, you know, some of you for 20 years, you know, or 30 years. You knew him before this happened. Um, and so you're really familiar with this story, right? And then at some point, this, this speaker looks over and comes over and prays for this person. And all of a sudden, this person who you all knew and knew the story behind jumps up and begins walking and leaping and praising God and, and rejoicing. That would be... I mean, think about it. That would blow your mind, wouldn't it? That would blow my mind, right? Okay, now imagine I'm sitting here, and I get up right after this happens. And you're all like, "Woo, wow, and just like amazed and rejoicing. And I get up, and instead of saying anything positive about what just happened, I harshly rebuke all of you. And I launch into a passive-aggressive speech, highlighting all the ways the guest speaker was wrong on a few specific points and how I'm right. What would you all be thinking? Like, what? What What just happened, right? Did you not just see what just happened? How is it that your heart could be so cold to this amazing thing God just did over here that, that, you're, that you totally missed it, right? That's what you'd be feeling. Do you feel that emotion? And in that moment, you know, the issue isn't any of this other stuff. The issue is my heart in that moment, if that were me, right? How could I be so prideful and hard-hearted that, that I didn't even rejoice at this amazing thing God just did? How could I not celebrate this amazing thing, right? That is called a religious spirit. That kind of heart. That's a religious spirit. And here's the thing you need to know about this, and this is picture number one, that man-made religion always gravitates towards rituals, towards rules, towards rigorous discipline, towards deep, complicated knowledge, head knowledge, and it always, it always goes towards that at the expense of treating other people well. In the scriptures, as Jesus shows us and, and reveals the heart of the scriptures to us, one of the things that he shows us over and over again is that the scriptures are really, when you boil it down to it, it's about really loving God. Really loving God, and that involves both having affection for him and really trusting him in such a way that it, that it leads you to obeying or doing what he says. And the primary way that it works itself out or the primary thing that he says to do, the primary thing is how we love and treat other people, right? And here's the thing. The longer you've been in church, the more likely you are to gravitate towards a religious spirit. So that's picture number one. Everybody got that picture? Okay, here's picture number two. Imagine you're at 
um, say, your middle school son's football game. And, and maybe some of you have experienced this, I hope not, for your sake of your son, right? And your son gets confused, and he's the star running back, right? But somehow, uh, you know, there's like a trick play, and it gets confusing, and he grabs the ball, and instead of running in the right direction, he turns around and takes it all the way down into the other end zone. It plays for, for some of you, this might be painful. Uh, I hope not. You know, you're like, you know. But imagine that feeling. The truth is, in that moment, you realize you're playing for the other team. He's playing for the other team, right? No, don't play for the other team. Play for the right team. And here's what you got to know to kind of set these two themes up. Is Jesus believed and Jesus taught there were two teams, or he would call it two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, which are under the rulership of uh, what Paul says in the New Testament is known as the God of this world or Satan. So two teams, only two choices, right? And, and Jesus consistently rebuked the religious leaders who thought they were the star players on God's team. And he consistently says, you're playing for the other team. You're playing for the other team. You are advancing the wrong kingdom. So you got those two pictures in your head? Okay, so today is a reminder that if we get caught up in a religious spirit, we will miss out on what God is doing all around us. And instead of our lives being about his kingdom, before we know it, they will be all about our small little kingdom, which in reality, and here's the, here's the tricky thing. We just think, okay, but in reality, that means you're playing for the other team. It means you're on the wrong side of the equation. Does everybody have those two pictures in their mind? Okay. Here we go. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. So the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week that he models in creation. God worked for six days. On the seventh, he rested. Not because God's like, man, I need a day off. But because God knows you're going to need a day off. And so he models this this pattern in creation, right? And so they would meet on the Sabbath day in synagogues. And in the Greek, the synagogue literally just meant a meeting place or a gathering place. This wasn't the temple. This wasn't where they would go and offer sacrifices. The synagogue system started around the time that the Israelites were exiled. And actually what we're doing here today is largely modeled off of the system, the synagogue system. They would meet together. They would pray. They would worship God. They would read the scriptures. They would hear the scriptures expounded to them, and they'd be encouraged to go out and live for God. That's what the synagogue system was all about. It really influenced the early church in a very big way. And so that's what's happening here. And it was really this, this time was really the heart and the life of the whole Israeli culture. In, in Jerusalem alone, there's 500 synagogues in the time of Jesus. And Jesus is there, and he's the guest speaker one Sunday morning. He's the guest speaker. And he gets up to teach, and they would have read a portion of the Torah, which is, you know, the first five books of the Bible, and then he would start to, to speak out and share the heart of God and, and talk about the Scripture. And so that's what he's doing here. And as we know, everywhere he went, he talked about the kingdom of God. We see that. It was, it was really one of the, at the primary heart of his message. He says, it's why I was sent, to preach the kingdom of God. So everywhere he went, he preached about that theme, and we'll get to that here in a minute and how that all ties together. But 
as he's speaking and as he's preaching, everybody's tracking with him. I mean, Jesus is amazing, right? I mean, even if you don't believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, you know Jesus is you know, probably, the, well, for sure, the most brilliant communicator in history, right? And so everybody's just tracking right along with Jesus as he speaks, and, and it's grabbing their heartstrings. And as this happens, um, he spots this woman. Maybe she's shuffling in the back a little bit late. Maybe, maybe she's kind of embarrassed. But you remember, this would be probably a small village because he's on his way to Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, mostly small villages. And so everybody in this town would know this woman. And she comes hobbling in like this, and he spots her. And Jesus has this immediate realization because he's Jesus. He knows that this is this, Luke tells us, this was because of a, a spiritual thing. This wasn't just a physical ailment. There was a spiritual oppression going on here in her life. Now, Luke does not tell us, notice what Luke does not tell us. He does not say that all physical ailments are a result of spiritual oppression, there's plenty of physical things. We're not against doctors, right? No, we're for doctors. We're for medicine. And there's some things that are just simply, you know, we live in a fallen world. Our bodies break down. Um, things deteriorate, right? That's, that's second law of thermodynamics that, that went into motion when sin and death entered the world, right? And so some things are just a result of that, but then there's other times where the enemy is at work, and 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 he doesn't give us a whole lot of information here, and we're not going to take a lot of time to dive into this this week. We'll do it some other time. But it, it says that there's this oppression by this demonic power, and she's just bent over. Can you imagine that? First of all, she's shamed because in the culture they believed that if if you had a physical ailment like this, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. You must have done something really bad sometime in the past. And so there's this constant stigma she lives with. If you remember the book of Job, you remember the things that Job's friends come? Like 38 chapters. If you've read it, it's, uh, you know, you read the book of Job and you're like, for 38 chapters or so, you're just like, oh, come on, guys, really? It's, it's so long. These friends just keep going. You must have sinned. Admit it. You did something wrong. You caused this thing in your life. You caused this situation in your life. And he keeps going, no, I, I, it's, that's not it. That's not it. And finally, God comes and he rebukes the friends at the end. But they had this idea in the culture. Jesus addresses it at another time. In fact, last week, if you remember, if you were here, the tower fell on some people. Do you think it was because they were worse sinners than you? No. People that Pilate killed, do you think that was because they were worse sinners than you? No. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. That's what he said last week that we all stand on this level playing field before God and we all fall short of his glory. That was the point last week, right? And so she's been over there and Jesus sees her and this is amazing. She doesn't come up to Jesus. Probably she's trying to kind of hide in the back as she heads over because they had kind of segregated things to the, to the women's area and she's, she's kind of uh, trying to hide where uh, hide herself, kind of feeling awkward and shy. Maybe she has some hope in her heart because she's heard so many amazing stories about Jesus and Jesus spots her out there. And in his compassion, he initiates, he speaks out, he addresses her. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her. Incredible gesture of, of tenderness, right, and of compassion. Uh, this was, 
this was not something that, you know, a religious leader in the time would do is put his hands on a woman, especially one who probably has some sort of dubious background. Otherwise, she wouldn't have this condition. And Jesus does, right? Lays his hands on her. And immediately she straightened up and praised God. Immediately. And when it says praise God, this isn't like, okay, we're a little bit of a stoic crowd in Western Colorado, right? This isn't like, you are holy God, you know. If you get really, if you're really bold, maybe you'll put your hand up a little higher, you know. If you've ever been to a Middle Eastern culture, um, they do this thing with their tongue, and I'm not going to try to do it, uh, kind of thing. Uh, I'm not going to do it how it really sounds, but you've heard it probably if you watch documentaries, right? I mean, they get noisy. They get loud. And I'm sure when it says she started praising God here, this wasn't just, oh, thank you, praise you, God, you know. She went crazy. Woo-hoo, right? I mean, she was praising God. She's probably running around, dancing. Can you imagine? Some of you have had really bad back things, and you could imagine um, maybe you had a surgery, and all of a sudden, you know, it helped you. Maybe God healed you. I don't know. But maybe you're still like this woman, and you've been waiting for years and years and years and, and just wondering when God will step in. Maybe that's you, too. And if that's you, he loves you. He sees you. I don't know why you're suffering with that, right? But you got to know he loves you and he sees you. He has compassion for you too. And so she's going crazy and everybody else is excited, right? They're going, wow, they can't believe this. Remember, small village, they, they would have been seeing this woman for the last 18 years since whenever this condition started. Those that have been there that long, probably most of them, because people didn't move around a lot in that culture, Right? So everybody in the synagogue would just be, their minds would be blown at this point. And they praise God because they recognize the only way this can happen is God moving. That's the only way this can happen. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. And everybody's shocked and everybody's rejoicing together. And then the pastor sitting over here on the front row steps up. And listen to this. It says, indignant. He's angry. He's indignant. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue leader said to the people, he rebukes all the people. He doesn't have the guts to rebuke Jesus straight out here. But he rebukes all the people. There are six days for work. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And basically a huge wet blanket all over the party, right? Everybody else is celebrating. He doesn't, there's no celebration. There's no joy. And wow, that's amazing. He doesn't come up to Jesus later and go, you know, Jesus, I, I just kind of talk to you and be a little humble in the situation because clearly you're being used by God. But, you know, I, I'm not sure about this whole Sabbath thing. Why don't you tell me your perspective on this? You know, he doesn't do that. No, no, he just gets up and harshly rebukes the people. And in this passive aggressive way comes directly against what Jesus just did. No rejoicing, no celebrating in this moment. And here's the deal. Here's what you got to know about the Sabbath. And basically in, in the scripture, there were only a handful of rules on the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath, right? Keep the Sabbath day holy or set apart. Don't make your servants work. You're like, okay, because he knew they were already thinking, okay, well, I get a day off, but I've got these servants over here. And they can serve me on the Sabbath. No, no, it doesn't work like that either. They get the day off. And even your animals, they get a day off. Everybody gets a day off. And, and you see, the point of this, as Israel um, was a nation under slavery for hundreds of years, 
and then God redeems him, he sets him free. This whole concept of Sabbath would have just blown their minds. Because if you think about it, they were driven seven days a week. All you know is you get up early, you, do, you, you work hard, and if you don't work hard enough, you get beat with whips by your masters. And then at the end of the day, you hope you can just barely get enough rest to get up and do it again. Repeat, repeat for hundreds of years. Can you imagine that? And all of a sudden, one of, the very, one of God's top 10 rules is thou shalt taketh a day offeth. That's great. And the whole nation would go, Oh, God is good. And, and to make it even better, because God was trying to teach him something through the Sabbath too. And what he was trying to teach him is, is your life doesn't depend on you. It's not all about your success. It's not all about advancement, that you need to pause and remember that life is about me and life is about connecting in relationship with each other. And, and so you keep it holy, you connect with each other and you remember what I've done for you. And it's this beautiful thing, right? Right? And they would have manna, that God would give manna in the 40 years in the desert. And this really cool, crazy thing happened. Uh, six days a week, if you collected more than you needed for the day, it would, the next morning it would be rotten. There'd be maggots all over. You know, you probably wouldn't repeat that too many times, would you? But here's the thing. The cool thing is on the sixth day, you would gather a double portion. There'd be a double portion out there. You'd gather what you needed for two days. And miraculously on that day, it would last for two days. What's God saying? You can trust me. You can trust me. And again, the whole nation would breathe a giant sigh of relief. And so the point of the Sabbath is it's supposed to be the best day of the week. See, let me just set something up. When God gives guidelines and rules and instructions and says, obey this in Scripture, a lot of times we think of this as restrictive. And there's some personalities that you just, you don't like rules at all. And so any rules you think of, my fun and my joy is trying to be restricted. But if you understand the heart, like Jesus said, that your loving heavenly father is a good heavenly father, then what you understand is the guidelines he gives you are for your joy and your benefit. They're there to protect you. Imagine it this way. If you moved into a new neighborhood and you had little kids, I have some smaller kids, not real little anymore, um, but you moved in and you had little kids and, and your house backed up to a busy road, you would fence the backyard, wouldn't you? And you would not do that to restrict your children and steal their joy. You would do that so they could go out in the backyard and run and play. And as long as they knew you stay within these boundaries, they can have incredible time out there and be protected from harm, right? And it's the same way in our lives when, when God speaks to you about um, purity before marriage. That's, that's the same way. That's why he does it, right? When he speaks to us about um, trusting him in our finances and trusting him at, at, in our not worrying, but trusting him and all these different things, it's for your joy. It's for your joy in life, ultimately. But so often we don't see it like that. We just see restriction. But God who creates you and loves you, it's, it's for your joy, right? And here's what the religious spirit does at this point. The religious spirit, and this is what happened in the nation of Israel, basically comes in and goes, well, if that fence is good, um, you know, just to make sure they don't ever get over that fence, let's come in about six feet and put another fence. And let's make this fence even a little bit taller. You know, they can see over the other one, see out, but this one will make it even taller. They can't, you know, they won't even be tempted. And then, then, then a little bit later, it comes in and goes, well, if two fences are better. Let's come in even, you know, another six or eight feet and build another fence even taller. And before you know it, you, you don't have a boundary that's, that creates joy anymore. You have a prison and your kids go out like this and there's no fun and there's no joy 
And probably they grow up and they rebel and they go off and say, don't fence me in, right? Okay. <laughs> Corny, man, that's, that's an old one. Yeah, okay. But that's the idea. And by the time that these guys had come around, they had created what was originally just a handful of, of stipulations God has for the Sabbath. They had created 1,500 rules and regulations. And instead of this being the best day of the week that you would look forward to, now all of a sudden it became a burden. Jesus says you place burdens on people, and, and they just place burdens on people. You don't lift a finger to help them. And instead it became oppression. And this is what Jesus is dealing with here is their hearts. Because somehow they thought if we could just, you know, be rigorous enough, then God will be pleased by that. And Jesus over and over through the Gospels, and the Gospel is all about them. That's not what pleases God. What pleases God is you're simply trusting him, placing your trust in him, loving him, allowing that to work itself out in your life by treating other people well, right? Over and over. And so, indignant, this is what the guy says, right? And it says, the Lord Jesus answered him, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? And even with all their little regulations, they could do that. You know, that was okay, Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? In other words, he's saying, you treat your animals better than your people. You see the irony in that? In an effort to try to please God, you treat your animals better than the very people made in the image of God. Jesus in another another spot says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath wasn't created so that you could keep a whole bunch of regulations perfectly about it. The Sabbath was created so you would rest, so you would connect, so you would enjoy your creator. It was for you. It was a gift. And you've turned it into oppression. And Jesus says, what better day? Are you kidding me? If there was a day for something to be set free, wouldn't this be it? If there was a day to see the kingdom of God moving right in your midst, wouldn't this be the day? If this was the day when the power of God breaks through and does something awesome, wouldn't this be the best day for that? The day when you've set aside to to meet with God, you know, to come in and and pray and study scriptures and rest and, and set apart as holy, isn't that the best time in the world for this to happen? And you know, Jesus shows us that the heart of God is to set people free. The heart of the kingdom of God revolves around compassion and freedom. You see, Jesus could have done a whole lot of things to show his power. You realize that? To, to show that he is God, you know, the son of God come down, God incarnate. He could have done a whole bunch of things. In fact, Satan tempted him to do some things, didn't he? Satan tempted, one of the things was, why don't you just throw yourself off the temple? The angels will catch you. You'll float down, you know, like a rock star. Woo. And everybody will go, wow, it's the Messiah. Show some big sign. In fact, at one point, that's exactly what they asked him for. Show us a sign, Jesus. Show us a sign. And Jesus goes, no, that's that's not what I'm all about. See, the heart of our Savior, the king of the universe, broke into this world as a tiny, fragile baby. And then when you see him moving in power, he's healing the sick. 
He's setting the oppressed free. He's feeding the hungry. And it just shows, that's God's heart, the humility of a servant. Because what they were expecting to see is the power of God in the form of a great, great big display, you know, some dramatic thing. And then for the kingdom of God to come by them uh, driving out the Romans. So they're ready for a military revolution at this point. But the heart of Jesus is compassion. It's compassion. And it says this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And so you see this, you see this contrast, right? You see this whole group of people that are just delighted because they've just witnessed the power of God in an incredible way, the kingdom of God breaking into this, this moment and, and, and just showing up in this incredible way. And yet you have this other group of people, these religious leaders, and their hearts are so hard that they don't even rejoice. There's not even like a, wow, that's amazing. There's this, just the first reaction is hardness. The first reaction is skepticism. The first reaction is anger and being indignant. And that's characteristic of a religious spirit and a hard heart. And Jesus constantly dealt with these guys about this. And you know, a religious spirit is something to constantly guard against. Here's a few keys to, to, to kind of watch and check your heart on. When you find yourself f- consistently first going to criticizing other followers of Jesus or other people. When you hear of something and your first response is not, wow, that's pretty cool. God might have done that or God did that. It's, well, you're, you're wrong in this area. Or you're wrong in this area. Or they don't have their theology squared away in this area, whatever. When that's your first go-to, when you hear of people coming to Jesus, at, you know, maybe some kind of crusade and, and giving their lives to Jesus, and, and, and the first go-to is criticism because you, you don't agree with so-and-so. See, this is something that I have to check my heart on too, right? Because believe me, I mean, we teach through the scriptures here. I'm, I'm all about theology, and, and, and it's good to, to, to study it with all your heart and try to come up you know, as best you can with God. This is what I believe scripture says, and, and to live that out, right? and to communicate truth. But when you first find, go to criticism, it's a good indicator. Or when you, find out, when you find yourself that you can't learn from someone who you disagree with on something else, that's a good indicator of a critical spirit. When someone shares a testimony of what God is doing in their life and you, you're immediately skeptical because they go to you know, that church, you don't buy into all that church's theology. When you start thinking you have it pretty much dialed in when it comes to your understanding of God and the Bible. You know, here's something. Um, one of our pastors, Jason, often says this, that the further away from the cross you get in either direction, the fuzzier it gets in certain ways. And, and so there's things we are absolutely 100% on, that Jesus died for us, that he rose again, that he's the son of God, that we have salvation through him by trusting in him and placing our faith in him. But there's a lot of things in scripture, and I, I, I study the Bible a lot. It's part of my job. It's a privilege to get to do that as part of a job, right? But there's many things as I study more and more, I just go, wow, and I come to the realization that there's people that are a lot smarter than me that have been studying this for a lot longer, and they don't agree on these things, certain things, not essential things, but other things, right? And hopefully that creates a humility in me, which goes, I don't have it all figured out. 
I don't have it all dialed in yet. I want to listen and have some humility in my life. You know, here's the thing. Ultimately, religious, a religious spirit is pride. That's what it comes from, is pride. And here's what we do in church oftentimes. There's lots of things that, you know, if we had a, like, a little conf- confession session, you know, and we circled up into small groups, we won't do this. We won't embarrass you like this, you know. But if we did... There's things that you would, you, know, you would be ashamed and probably wouldn't want to conf- tell the group that you struggled with. But then this one of pride, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of struggle with pride, right? And it's almost like a, yeah, well, you know, doesn't everybody. It's, it's almost like a, a parking ticket, you know? You're not really that embarrassed that you got a parking ticket. And here's the thing. In Scripture, pride is not a minor sin. And this is the error of the religious leaders. Because they thought on all these other nitty-gritty little details, they had it all dialed in. And the thing that governed their hearts and their lives was this pride that, that I can earn God's pleasure because of who I am and how well I keep all these laws and all these rules. And all you that obviously fall short of keeping these very well, you're sinners and, and I'm doing pretty good over here. You know, yeah, I have my little deals, but you know. And pride is not a minor sin in Scripture. In fact, Proverbs 6 starts out with, with, with a, uh, a list of six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven that are an abomination, and you know how it starts? Pride. Proud look, haughty eyes. Number one on the list. Peter says that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So this isn't like a minor detail. There, Jesus, a little bit later, we'll see this story, he tells tells a, a story about a religious leader and then this tax collector, this horrible sinner. The religious leader is praying, God, thank you that you know, you've made me who I am and not like all these other sinners like that tax collector over there. And the tax collector is, says it won't, he won't even look up, but he's just beating his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one of those went home justified? The tax collector. And so this is, this is a big deal thing in Scripture. And Jesus said just to people with a religious spirit, man, you need forgiveness just like the tax collectors. They can see it and you can't. He calls them blind guides, hypocrites, sons of the devil. He gets pretty harsh with them, right? So that was picture number one. And we're going to move quickly through picture number two. Because Jesus goes on and he ties these two seemingly unrelated things together, but it's what comes next. And to understand this, we're going to talk about next, Jesus is going to talk about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is all about. And the kingdom of God is mentioned about 50 times just in Luke. Like I said, the kingdom of God is a primary theme throughout the New Testament and throughout the book of Luke, throughout Jesus' teaching. And basically to understand it, this is way oversimplifying and and we could do a whole study. In fact, I encourage you, uh, go do a keyword study on Bible Gateway and do just enter the word kingdom. And look up all 143 references in the New Testament and read them all. It'll be like, wow, that's amazing. I I had no idea what a huge theme this was all throughout the scriptures. The kingdom of God is basically to boil it down. It's it's the realm. It's where God reigns. It's where God reigns. And in their history, human kings had consistently failed them. And so they were looking forward to the age when God would come and reign and set things right on this earth earth and get rid of evil and pain, where people would finally live in righteousness and obedience to the king. 
And so there's a few different things to, to know about the kingdom of God. The first is that really it is, it is primary to Jesus' message. He says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in the other towns because that is why I was sent, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And, and all the way, even after, after the resurrection, at the very end of the book of Acts, and really Luke and Acts are two, it's a continuation. It's one long story in two volumes. And at the end of the book of Acts, we see a scene right at the end where Paul is sitting there and it says he's preaching the kingdom of God. And so it goes all the way through, all the way through. Something else you need to know about the kingdom of God is this, that at Jesus' first coming, he launches his kingdom movement. And as I've studied through scripture, it's, it's, you read all these different scriptures. And we have this saying, it's called the already and the not yet. And here's what this means. The now is it, at Jesus' first coming, he says things like the kingdom of God has come near you. It's come upon you. He tells us to seek first his kingdom. He says, when you pray, pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done. And so this is the idea. In heaven, God's will done perfectly. On earth, not so perfectly, right, at this moment. And so the, the idea is, in my life, let your will be done. And, and in this world, let your will be done. And that's what something we're told to pray. He tells the, the uh, Pharisees, that the tax collectors and sinners are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. When the Pharisees ask him, when's the kingdom of God going to come? He says, don't, don't think it's like some big visible thing. You can go, here it is, there it is. He says, because the kingdom of God is in your midst, or uh, literally in the Greek, it can also mean within you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. It's, it's within, that he reigns, the king reigns in our lives, right? Paul says that he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son he loves. But here's the other part, is the fullness of his kingdom will not come until Jesus returns. We call this the not yet, the not yet. And this is what we experience every day in life. We know, you know, there's sicknesses and pains and things that, that, that we struggle with. There's, there's evil all around in this world. Satan is still trying to take people out on a very regular basis. And so Jesus says things like, my kingdom is not of this world, or I won't eat of this Passover supper again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God, meaning there's, there's an age to come where this comes in fullness, right? Peter says, you, you will receive a rich welcome into the, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. And this is really important to understand, not yet, because as, as followers of Jesus, we don't bring in the kingdom. In fact, every, whenever the church moves towards earthly power, bad things happen in history. You can just go back, you know, crusades, horrible, corrupt things happen whenever the church tries to grab onto earthly power. And then one other thing you got to really know about the kingdom of God is you enter the kingdom by being born again. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you in John, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, again. I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. And so these are really quick. I mean, we could take some time. We'll probably do a whole series on this and dig into some of these things. But the fifth thing that you need to know is that nothing can stop the kingdom. Nothing can stop the kingdom. And this is where these two things really tie together because all of a sudden, this woman has experienced the kingdom coming near, breaking in. She's encountered the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus and the power of, of the kingdom of God. 
breaking into this moment. By the way, uh, you know, the now and the not yet is why we pray for people. And, and we know at times God heals people and it's awesome. And at times he doesn't. And we don't get to make that choice. But he calls us to pray in faith. That's what it says in James, right? So if you need prayer, come get prayer. Luke 13, 18, he tells this story. And, and seemingly it's like, okay, how do these two connect, Jesus? You're doing this whole thing. You rebuke this guy. You know, you have this strong thing. And then you go on to this other little teaching here. It's very short, just a few verses. But Jesus asked then, asked. He says, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds perched in its branches. And oftentimes, a huge majority of the parables is Jesus asking, what is the kingdom of God like? Or saying the kingdom of God is like this. Why did Jesus teach on that so much? Because they had an idea of what the kingdom of God was going to be like in, in that time. That the kingdom of God was going to come with a political revolution. It was going to come in and drive out the, all the enemies of God. Because that's what the scriptures prophesy, right? That's coming. That's the not yet part. When Jesus returns, that's the not yet part. Right? But at this moment, Jesus says, it's not coming in the way you think. Here's, how it, here's what it looks like. It looks like a mustard seed. And that's a tiny little seed, the tiniest seed in agriculture at the time. And there was, you know, like rabbis would talk about this. This was a common saying, you know, as tiny as a mustard seed. So this was a common expression. And basically he's saying the kingdom of God, it, you're encountering it, it's, you're bumping into it, it's launching in the person of Jesus Christ, and you're, you're missing it because it's so small. It's not coming in the way you think. It's not a dramatic thing. It's a little thing. It's the move of God. It's what just happened with this woman right here where she was freed from the power of Satan, where the, the other team, the other kingdom had been oppressing her for 18 years, and all of a sudden, freedom, release. That is what, I'm, what he's talking about, right? And he says, but it's not going to stay small forever. It's going to grow. In fact, it's going to become so big that it's going to become a tree, or literally it's like a mustard tree bush, which is the biggest bush. It's like 12 to 15 feet wide and really tall, and, and birds would actually come and nest in there. That's how big this thing would grow, from this tiny little thing you could barely see. And all the birds of the nations and throughout, throughout uh, Scripture represent all the nations that will come, all the nations that will come and find rest. And he goes, that's what it's, that's what it's like. That's what it's like. The language comes out of Ezekiel 17, if you want to look it up. Luke 13, 20. Again, he asks, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. In other words, you can't see it. 60 pounds, that's a big, if you need bakers out there, that's a big batch of bread, isn't it? And you mix in a pinch of yeast, not too much. Looks so insignificant. In fact, once it's mixed in, you can't even see it. And yet, what's happening? Before you know it, it permeates the whole thing, doesn't it? It permeates. It goes into every nook and cranny. And what happens? The bread rises. This amazing thing happens. And he says, the kingdom of God is going to be kind of like that. It's going to start out small and tiny, and you're not going to be able to see it. But before you know it, it's going to permeate everything. It's going to be everywhere. You can't always see it working, but it's working. It's unstoppable. 
And if you'd been alive in Jesus' time, you could never have anticipated how Jesus' promise would be fulfilled. He says something else in another thing. My gathering, my movement, my church, I'll build it and nothing will stop it. The gates of hell won't stop it. It'll just keep going. Nothing can stop it. And nobody could have anticipated that 2.4 billion people in the world would now identify with the name of Jesus. They would say, Jesus is Lord. Nobody could have anticipated countless charities, hospitals, educational systems being started in the name of Jesus. And, and here's the thing. Oftentimes, we sit here in you know, our little bubble over here in, in Colorado, or even in the United States, and we look at our culture, and we look at you know, how it seems like the culture is shifting against people that believe in Jesus. You know, it's just shifting against that and, and, and all of that. We get kind of this poor me, little mindset, like you know, we're oppressed and all that. And oftentimes, it's myopic because we don't see what God is doing around the world. And we have this feeling like it's shrinking, it's being beaten back, you know, and we're, we somehow have to defend Jesus. But here's the truth of what's going on around the world. I read an article in Christianity Today. It says, even in the U.S. and Europe, evangelical Christianity grew in strength. Now, some tradi- more traditional denominational kind of things have been declining, right? But churches similar to ours, it says it grew in strength and confidence in most European countries, And in the U.S., from the 90s to the present. So it's growing, not as fast as, you know, we'd like to see. Not as many people are coming to Jesus as we'd like to see. But here's the thing. We just look at our little bubble, right? Here's what's happening around the world. It says the church is growing dramatically in the rest of the world. The church has seen a dramatic and explosive growth in Asia, Africa, and South America. The growth of the African church is particularly jaw-dropping. In 1900, there were fewer than 9 million Christians in Africa. Now there are more than 541 million. 51% increase in 15 years. Every day there's about 33,000 people either becoming Christians or being born into Christian families in Africa. It's incredible. In China, in 1949, there were 1.2 million Christians. There was severe persecution after that, and everybody thought... The church would be wiped out, but today there are an estimated 100 million Christians in China. It just keeps growing and growing. China is on course to be the world's most Christian nation by the year 2030. More than the U.S. Isn't that amazing? Pakistan, where Islam has dominated for centuries, recently a million people met and had the gospel preached to them, and many of them were converted to Jesus. That would have been unheard of. It's just incredible. We don't understand this because we just look at our little bubble, right? And that's amazing stuff. That's the the kingdom of God is growing around the world. It's unstoppable. Just like Jesus said, it will permeate. It will permeate. It It will get into every single corner. It will continue to grow. Nothing will stop it. And when he comes back, it will come in fullness as promised in the scriptures. And so, let me just leave you with this question. In what ways am I missing God's kingdom because of religious spirit? Is there a religious spirit inside missing what God is doing right around you? From experiencing the work he's doing in your neighbor and those on your right and your left? To experience what he's doing in your job or in your school? Are you really seeking to know God or just know about him? Because that's one thing we get really good at. 
especially those of you like me that really like to dig in and, you know, find the technical details of Scripture and get it all mapped out and think you have it figured out, right? Get really good about knowing about God, but are you really digging in to get to know Him personally? Grow in relationship with Him? People that really experience God are the people who really seek Him. And that means more than just studying. It's prayer, it's crying out to Him, right? For some of you, you need to do some kingdom work, not just learn about the kingdom. See, that's something we do oftentimes too, is we just come and learn it, learn it, learn it, learn it, but we never do it. And for some, it's, it's going to be a risk when you need to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in, who dwells in your heart, whispers in your ear and says, I want you to go over and talk to that neighbor. I want you to really step out and ask if I can pray for them. You know, in the other cubicle at work and put your hand on them and pray for the situation they're going through in their life and see if the power of God doesn't meet them where they're at. And that's scary for some of you, isn't it? It feels awkward. But you need to open up your mouth. You need to share what God's doing in your life. You need to re-engage. Some of you, you need to get involved. Maybe some of you, you need to go on a missions trip and see what God's doing in another culture. You know what we're going down to do in Mexico here? It's really, it's, as we go down, it's, you know, our, the gospel is going to be preached and these people are going to be blessed in an incredible way. And they're going to encounter the love of people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And they're going to rub shoulders with it. And Lord willing, they're going to come to know him as their own Lord and Savior. And that's one of our passions here at Life Community. Would you wrestle with that this week? Would you stand? Father, I just thank you for my friends. Lord, I pray you would show each person here specifically how this applies in their life. We look forward to the day and we say, come, Lord Jesus. And say, let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven, Lord. We love you. And I lift up each and every person here. And for that person that may not have embraced you for the first time and is trusting in their own works, Lord, would you let them just cry out to you in this moment? and say, I need you, Jesus. I trust in you. Lord, we love you. We lift up your name. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.